are Seraphim. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Generation Space podcast, a portfolio spotlight series. In this episode, I'm excited to welcome Rafael Modrevsky, Ravellis' CEO and founder of ISI. ISI owns and operates the world's largest constellation of synthetic aperture radar satellites, otherwise known as SAR. The company provides timely and reliable Earth observation data, as well as natural catastrophe solutions for companies and governments. And Rafael and ISI are a member of the SSIT portfolio. Hi, Rafael. Hello. And I'm also pleased to welcome back to the podcast James Brugger, who works closely with Rafael and the team at ISI. Hi, James. Hi, Leah. Great to be back. Rafael, let's get straight to it. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you first got into space? I studied radio science engineering. It actually starts with, with electrical engineering as your um, first degree, and then you can specialize in part of the frequency spectrum. And so I chose the, the radio science engineering part, which is actually a science very close to, to radar design. Then I have joined a, a small satellite program over here at Alta University called Alta One. That's back in the days when universities around the world were building CubeSats. Um, I started building a CubeSat of my own. That was um, the three-unit CubeSat designed along with the university team. And that led me to take on a, a space minor in addition to my my major studies. And then as we were building those, those CubeSats here at Alto, uh, there were actually a consecutive numbers to Alto 1, Alto 2, Alto 3. There was a moment in time when myself and my co-founder, Pekka Laurila, sat down and decided to, to open a space startup. Amazing. Fascinating. Thank you. And um, what about the history of ISI itself? Or where did you go from there? So, of course, it's a, it's a bit of a, a standard startup history. You know, we, we started with, with two people and then we moved through first uh, a research and development phase. We were financed through a grant that was managed by us and the university. We have successfully tested a radar instrument that we've built that allowed us to convince one of our first customers back in the days that was ExxonMobil that, that became the customer of ours in 2015 to finance the next phase of, of R&D, which was successful. That further on allowed us to reach the Series A financing and, and bring on board some, some first private investors. And uh, as a consequence, we, we've had enough financing to complete the, the research and development phase and launch our first satellite in, in January 2018. That was ISA-X1. And since then, we've launched 27 following satellites and uh, and the company grew from, from uh, 20, 30 people to about 600 at this day. And I mentioned in my introduction, ISA is working on catastrophe solutions and, and they have clients that are companies and governments, but what's ISA's mission right now? So ISA's mission today and, and um, for most of its time was to uh, bring our observation to the decision-making. So we want to improve, make decision-making more efficient through the use of Earth observation information. We tap into um, different industries where decisions are being made, whether that's uh, a more of a governmental side where the governments are deciding how to locate certain things or deploy their, their resources uh, all the way to to insurance industry and, and other industries involved in natural catastrophe management and, and relief, where we provide a more complex solution, which is a bit more of a processed data versus the, the raw image from, from a synthetic aperture radar. Can you explain to everyone exactly what SAR is and how they work and what are the unique advantages that they can deliver? Right. So, so SAR stands for a synthetic aperture radar, which means that it's a, a radar imaging instrument as any radar, it's an active instrument, meaning that it has to produce the wave 
or the way front that it will it will then record the return of. That means that it has to collect quite a lot of imagery in order to send a flash of energy, which is then going to reach the targets on the ground. And those uh, targets are going to return a bounce and that will be further recorded. Now, that means that as we are using a radar imaging technique, we can see through clouds. And as this is an active instrument, we can uh, take images while it's dark because we, we do not need sun to generate energy for us. So that allows us to see through clouds and darkness or, or for that matter, any, any adverse weather conditions that would otherwise limit a visual instrument. And uh, the synodic aperture part of the radar instrument allows you to focus the resolution. So to convert what usually looks like a bunch of uh, dots into a, an actual image that looks quite similar to what we are used to while looking at visual imagery with resolution high enough for us to be able to differentiate very small small features and very small elements. So such capability allows us for, for what we would refer to as continuous monitoring or persistent monitoring. We can monitor any location around the globe with very high frequency, and we know that we will be able to re receive those images or to collect data regardless of the time of day or weather conditions. Thank you for explaining that to everyone. And James, I'll go over to you. Um, how did Serifo first come across Rafael and, and ISI as a business? We first came across uh, Rafael and uh, ISI at a space tech conference in, in Germany in early 2017, just after we'd uh, started investing out of our first uh, first fund, which was uh, fortunately for us at a time that uh, Rafael was looking to, to raise his Series A finance, putting up their first satellite. So I think it was sort of right place, right time, and um, the rest is Rafael, can you give everyone a, an understanding of scale of your organization today? For example, how many employees do you have? Where are your offices based? And a little bit more about that funding that James just mentioned. We are present currently in, in uh, five countries with physical locations. So we are, we are headquartered in, in Helsinki, Finland. Then we have offices, uh, quite a large office in, in Warsaw in Poland. We have a, a big manufacturing facility in, in Spain. We have quite a large group of individuals sort of scattered around, but collected in a few offices in, in, uh, in the UK. And then we have recently opened a facility in, uh, in the United States, in, in California. Across those five offices, we, we have about 600 people working in a variety of, of, of functions, all sort of being full-time employed by, by ISI. They have built and launched uh, 28 SAR spacecraft, and uh, that has created the constellation that, that exists today. And of course, James was referring to um, a financing round that that happened already quite quite some time ago. Since then, we we've we've had uh, several different financing rounds, and and altogether we we've raised uh, over three hundred million dollars. Amazing, thank you. And you've touched on it slightly, but what, why is what I say doing so important? And how do you help support the new space economy? We try to support all the economy, probably more than than just the new space economy as as, as such. We try to use the, the new space-related technologies in order to, to harness information that people haven't had access to before. And now that we can place that information in their hands, their decision-making ability is, is significantly improved, which means that whatever they are about to do, they can make this faster or more accurately. And I think here we can, you can use an as an example the flood response product that we provide both to the insurance companies as well as to governments. Whenever a government was trying to deploy aid 
following a flooding event, they actually had no idea where the water was or what was the severity of the of the flood that was, was taking place. We can provide them that information within 24 hours uh, from when the flood starts. And that allows them to actually properly figure out, first of all, how many resources are, are necessary. Uh, and then when and where they should be deployed in order to maximize the efficiency of that response action. So all of those are decisions, naturally. You have to decide how many people you have to activate. Then you have to decide where are you going to send them and in what order, and uh, what are they going to carry with them in order to actually be able to respond to the situation at hand. Now, if you don't have information that ISAC provides you, you are going to be blind to the situation that you're responding to, which means you you can't really make those decisions correctly. If you have our information, you are significantly more efficient than you used to be. And that's just one of the examples, right? ISA's information is information collected from all over the world. We see not only the flooding, we see all sorts of natural catastrophes, but we also see vessels at sea. We see buildings moving up and down. We see crop. Uh, we see movement of troops. We see deforestation. We see all sorts of stuff and all of those different bits and pieces of information that we haven't had access to before ISAI began its operation are now being used by a variety of industries in order to make better decisions. Thank you. Hugely important technology. James, what made um, ISAI stand out to you from an investor perspective when you first met him and, and then now? Well, a whole bunch of things. I mean, to start with, just the opportunity for synthetic aperture radar. So clearly uh, being able to capture it, information, imagery about the Earth from space is already a very large market, but it's been historically constrained by the fact that for more than two thirds of the world at any one time, it's either dark or it's cloudy. And if you're talking about places such as around the equator, it's cloudy pretty much all the time, not to mention the, the, the UK. So that has really limited your ability historically to be able to cameras, same sort of cameras that might go in your mobile phone to capture information. So as Raphael's been explaining, the advantage of synthetic aperture radar is that you can reliably capture information anywhere at any time. We thought that was just a really powerful opportunity. Why hadn't that opportunity been uh, unlocked before? Well, because historically, the only people who've been able to avail of this amazing technology were really a handful of very wealthy nations that had subsidized the build of very small number of very large satellites. So what really stood out for, for, for us when, uh, when we met up with Rafael and, and Pekka was the fact that they were bringing really archetypal new space thinking to the traditional market, doing things that many people thought were impossible, miniaturizing satellites that cost hundreds of millions, if not billions, into something that, that is hundreds of, uh, of the cost and, and, and the size, but still highly, highly capable. So I think it was those combinations, along with really just two top-notch founders in, in Rafael and, uh, and Eka, who really had the ambition to, to make a massive global impact. Well, you just touched on it, but can you tell us a little bit more about what the current size of the addressable market? Yes, I think there's different ways of, of looking at that. So I think you've got the traditional market, which I would just call the Earth Observation Market, which is sort of single-digit billions in, in size and Synthetic aperture radar is a is a subset of that that market, albeit a very rapidly growing subset. Because as I've just been explaining, it offers unique advantages in being able to reliably and persistently capture information that other sensing modalities uh, can't. So that market has traditionally been dominated by defence and governments. 
and that continues to, 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 be the, to be the case today. We really see with iSize Health that side of the market expanding rapidly by virtue of being able to offer these same co- capabilities at a fraction of the cost of, uh, of historic satellites. That's expanding the market. But I think for us, really, that's only, that's only scratching the surface of, of what we see this opportunity as, as being. So fundamentally, I think if you're trying to get a sense of the potential scale of the opportunity that ISI is going after, you need to think about what it means to potentially be able to monitor change on every square meter of the earth in close to real time. And Raphael has talked about some of the use cases that enables. So just the natural catastrophe market, which is where uh, one of the areas that ISI is focusing on. Natural catastrophes cost the insurance industry hundreds of billions of dollars. And it's very, very hard to, to mitigate the damage and to try and actually predict where that damage might, uh, might occur. It's through the sort of novel data sets that ISI is developing that there is an opportunity to meaningfully change the paradigm around just that one area. And you can duplicate that across dozens of other, other instances. So the overall potential scale of, uh, of this business, we believe, is, is really, really significant. And that ultimately this vision of being able to, to monitor minute change in the world in close to real time, we think is going to have a really profound impact, not just on the space sector, but actually on many, many other areas as well. It sounds obviously like a huge market. So are there any competitors out there, Rafael? Who, who might they be? Obviously, I think across different industries, you'll have different potential competitors, but who, who might they be? Right. So there's, there's probably always a different groups of, of competitors. At the end of the day, the market, as, as you mentioned, is, is very large. So from the problem standpoint, there is many ways of trying to address this. And as such, there are diff- different groups of competitors. I think um, James have alluded to what we would consider the most uh, entrenched competition, which is the you know, what's often referred to as, as old space. You would see over there companies like Airbus, Boeing, Lockheed, that were traditionally known for building space systems, and they, they naturally still do. Then you would see the, the new space entrants that are trying to build small centric aperture radar satellites. And of course, ISI is, is one of those companies, but then there are companies like Capella Space, Umbra Space, or, or Synspective from, from Japan. Naturally, very often it is the case that you may be able to address a certain information challenge by using a different sensing technology than, than uh, a synthetic aperture radar. Here we see that there is a certain overlap with, with companies like Planet or even perhaps Hawkeye. And, uh, and I do believe that you don't always even have to use space, right? So in a natural catastrophe space, we would see competition coming from companies that would either use uh, planes or a linear map that use those planes in order to collect data or even people using um, Internet of Things like technology. So it's a very broad competitive space where... Every single of these companies is, is both a competitor of yours, but also a partner of yours. So it's a bit of a fascinating world. And James, how will ISI stand out um, against these competitors? How, how will they win? Well, I'd say, how are they winning? And the evidence is that they are by virtue of, uh, of, of their global, global leadership. So what do I think of the things that have factored into that? I think one thing that has been really important for us, both in investing in ISI and more generally, across our, our, our wider portfolio is companies that have taken a vertically integrated approach. So what do I mean by vertical integration? I mean people to the fullest extent possible designing everything themselves, building it themselves, operating it, and then actually trying to, 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 to monetize it. 
So that's what we mean by, by vertical integration. I think that has been one of the critical ingredients of iSize success is that they are very vertically integrated. I can still remember my first time of visiting iSci and the pride that Raphael took in showing me the wires that they made in-house themselves. So I, I think that's been really important for, for a number of uh, number of factors. I think it's been really important in terms of driving the, 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 the cost of iSci satellites down. But more than that, I think it's been incredibly important in driving the pace of innovation that iSci has been able to, to, to demonstrate. And when you ally that with the fact that iSci, and I have to say, very unusually for a European company, had global first mover advantage. So getting there first in space is generally very important because it enables you to figure out hard problems, come up with interesting solutions to those, those problems before your competitors get there. And I think iSize had that advantage of being first move advantage. It's moved very quickly. It's continued to, to innovate. And as such, I look at how capable the latest generation of satellites are versus the one that was first launched five years ago. It's incomparable. So I think that's really been, been fundamental to, to, to why the business is being successful. And ultimately, why we think they'll win out is because they're going to have the biggest constellation of the lowest cost, most capable satellites Thanks, James. And I'm sure there's many, Raphael, but what are some of iSight's biggest achievements to date and what are you most proud of? You know, I think that the starting item would, would probably have to be the ISAX one. It was quite an incredible mission, given that there just hasn't been a small synodic operator before. James have uh, alluded over here to the, the ISAX first mover advantage. You know, it's, it's a great thing to have. But it is, it is difficult to be first in a certain, especially field of technology. You are up against quite many people that do bring out the fact that it doesn't exist as, uh, as an evidence of it being impossible to build. We've seen in the history of, of space industry, not only the one in the past, but also the one in the, in the so let's say, more recent past, that it's very difficult for a first mission by a small company to be a, a full success. It could have gone terribly wrong, but it didn't. We've launched the first satellite in January 2018. None of such satellite has existed before, and that satellite actually has successfully captured and delivered images for months and months following that launch. And it has captured many hundreds of images, and they were of very high quality, and they have um, proven that the thesis underlying ISI was, was actually right. So I think that was that was a huge one. Naturally, of course, the new generation that, that James have alluded to is, is something that we're really proud of, and especially the capability that we have recently released along with this generation, which is a, a dwell mode imaging capability that allows you to create images that contain so much data captured over such a long period of time that for the first time we see video clips being recorded with a radar imaging device instead of an optical device, right? So... This is actually something that has never been thought of before, but one could capture so much information that the video clip would be would be generated. Yet we can do this today. And of course, that's that's something that we are massively proud of. We do enjoy those moments in time when our technical capabilities result in massive global impact. We have supplied information from ISIS Constellation to help the, the Ukrainian war effort. That's a public information and and of course, we we have been complying with with all the regulations here and, and and working with appropriate authorities, but we have received a lot of 
fantastic feedback, basically stating that that we have saved lives and not one or two lives. We we've saved thousands of lives, which is naturally something that we are we are extremely proud of. We have helped countries as large as the United States respond to some of their biggest natural catastrophes. We were there for Harvey, but we were there most more recently for Hurricane Ian last year, and we are very actively pre- preparing for the hurricane season this year. But last year, the efficiency with which we managed to help FEMA, which is Federal Management um, Emergency Management Agency, to respond to the hurricane event, which actually covered almost the entire east coast of the United States, was massive. And we know that we've not only saved money, but again, we have saved lives, right? So once those two things come together, once the technology that you've been working so hard on not only works, but actually generates outputs that have impact on people and not just on their well-being or their wealth, but they actually can save them, those are truly the moments that you're Thank you. You must be very proud. It sounds fascinating. Um, I was going to ask you about success and you, how you define success. And you touched on that. I and mean, the proof is in the pudding. Your product, it's working and, it, and it's and it's doing a good job. But is there anything else, any, any other way that you define success for, you, for yourself and, and for your company? As a company, we, we've always had the tendency, and and, and, and maybe that's, that's something that, that caught James's eye, that we tend to wake up every day and move the goalpost just a little bit further down the road, right? So we we tend to want to achieve something, but once we are getting close enough, we move this just a little bit further. And ultimately the complete or final success is capturing the the size vision, which is rather broad and, and, and vague, but that's on purpose. We want to improve the global decision-making through the use of our observation. Once we are done with that, you can go back to sleep and, 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 and rest. But, but only once all the decisions around the whole globe are made better and more efficient through the use of observation. Amazing. Thank you. Um, and what about milestones? Have you got any exciting milestones that you're able to tell us about for ISO? You know, the big milestone for this year, for instance, is to, for the first time, launch more than 10 SAR satellites. We've become increasingly good at launching multiple satellites at the same time. Last launch, that was five SAR satellites in one rocket, the largest amount of SAR, of SAR satellites ever launched in a single launch. Manufacturing, actually, we're we are about to launch 13 this year. But we, we've set a milestone as, as being above above ten. You know, there's naturally some some of those metrics which are a bit more boring from an engineer perspective, but probably a bit more exciting from an investor perspective. We are aiming at a hundred million dollar revenue milestone at the end of this year, and that's naturally something that defines the size of the company as well as the response from the market. I, I think those those are probably the two most intriguing ones. Thank you. You mentioned revenues, but ca- can you tell us about profit? When will you see ISI getting into profit? I think that that's that's already a conversation which is which is even a bit more complex from the perspective that it 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 starts becoming also an accounting exercise. I think it's also a matter of deciding whether becoming profitable is the purpose of the company in itself. If you do that, that means that you're actually spending for your growth and research and development the amount of money that you're generating, which means you're sort of bootstrapping your further growth. Now, are you comfortable with that pace or do you want to grow faster? Normally, if the company has a growth potential, the market will grant it the ability to continue raise money and actually make further investments, which naturally yields it unprofitable. And we've, we've seen this being the case with big technology companies. I think SpaceX probably here being the best example. 
Starling being the second example, both of those companies are kind of uh, from under the same umbrella, but but they are doing different things, both in space, both in completely new domains. I'm sure they are there are quantum computing companies that do exactly the same. There is just so much more research and development that needs to go into this that there is no need to artificially try to stop and slow down unless you particularly have to, right? I think most of well-built and healthy space companies could become profitable if they wanted to within a very short period of time by just cutting the the amount of R&D going on. Now, the only question is why would you do that? And and today that's, that's not known. I've been following a lot of your live updates on the recent floods in, in the US. And it's just been amazing to see this real kind of actual intelligence um, and how it's utilized. And I think I just wanted you to explain to everyone how ISA is supporting real businesses um, on the ground and, you know, just bring, bring the whole story to life for everyone. Kind of going back to this example that we, we, we've covered over here once is what kind of information do you have available at hand when in time following a flooding event? So in those particular cases, what happens is, is flood takes place. We usually are able to only um, briefly and not very accurately predict that it's about to take place, usually, especially with the flash flood. That's something that's that's extremely difficult. And once it's it's happened, you have to decide what is the right response, both financially, if you were a business, either insuring that area or operating in the, that area, but also related to your sort of relief resources, especially if you are a civil government that's about to take care of that event. We do help both of those institutions. Now, there isn't a single item that we, we sold for them. They all have very complex decision chains, starting from allocation of funds, allocation of resources, allocation of response times, uh, roadmap builds. You know, all of those decisions, there's probably at last different counts, specified 12 to 15 different decision points in a, in a claims response organization, which is a, a part of an insurance company, that all are made following a, a natural catastrophe that can be made successfully or unsuccessfully depending on whether you have data. Maybe, you know, the most kind of obvious example is, is something that we have we have done in Japan last year, where an insurance company would use the data that ISA has produced in order to identify cars that have been fully flooded, so the total loss. And then they didn't even wait for what's called the first notice of loss from an insurance policy holder, but they would pay out the limit of that policy automatically based on the data they have received. Which means from the user perspective, they didn't even probably know that their car was flooded yet, and they've already received money to cover for that loss, right? And so that's a somewhat of a transformational situation from a from an insurance policyholder perspective and from an insurer perspective. The fact that they can do it so quickly is quite, quite innovative. But now that naturally has a financial impact, I think, we tend to be more excited about the impact where we see, you know, people stranded on the roof, and then uh, and then a boat or a helicopter getting there to pick them up. We know where they are. The authorities don't. If we can work together with the authorities, we can get there faster. Amazing, thank you. Fascinating stuff. At Seraphim, as James mentioned, um, we like to always back visionary founders, and you saw that in in you and your co-partner. What's your vision for a future when iSide becomes a huge success? I, I guess more of that, right? Now we are able to to support the natural catastrophes. We we are doing an excellent job with the flooding. We have uh, responded to a request that we've received last year to build a similar capability around wildfire. 
but there are still more catastrophes that are left to, to tackle. Now, today, we can help relieve the damage or support the rescue operations. Naturally, what we would really want to do is to prevent the floods from happening. That's a whole new problem to solve. But now, once again, that's only natural catastrophes, right? We still have to manage our seas. We have to manage our forests. We have to manage our coral reefs. We have to manage the logistics around the world. As sort of as we've been discussing, there's just so much that's happening on the surface of our planet that we could make more efficient and better if we had the information appropriately processed and combined to make those better decisions. I think, you know, eyesight won't really stop until until we are we are satisfied that we, we've really done enough. But how we see this go forward is we see more satellites, more sensors of all sorts and types, whether in space or, or out of space, and all that data flowing into a one huge data stream where processing algorithms, probably hopefully using in the future generative AI, are going to transform those into insights that us as decision makers can use to make the world a better place. Well, thank you. That's all from me. And it's been a completely fascinating conversation. And thanks for explaining everything so well. We are Seraphim.